This is Refigure with Chris and Rifo. A weekly dive into our favourite bits of culture, tech and diversity. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Refigure. This is episode three of season two, if you're counting. I'm Chris. And I'm Reefer. And this week on Refigure, we're, are we always going to call it Refigure? Okay. This week, shh, we've watched a ton of new and returning British sitcoms, including Partridge, Dairy Girls, Home, Fleabag. So we'll talk all about them. And we also watched the first half of Leaving Neverland. Ugh. The documentary about Michael Jackson's relationship with young boys. I'm going to talk about this disconcerting weird thing that happened to me. I accidentally found some audio recordings of my great uncle talking about the First World War. Also, I'll be talking about how I went on a poetry workshop. An actual poetry workshop. And wrote poems. How are you, dude? Come on then, we've been watching telly. Reef is not that well today. So, first topic... Bless you. First topic today is the state of British sitcoms because it's been a pretty hefty week for British sitcom. So we watched Fleabag, we also watched Rufus Jones' new show Home and we binged the first season of Derry Girls in order to watch the returning second series of Derry Girls and we attempted to watch Alan Partridge's Return to the BBC although that went awry. I thought you were going to tell me what you thought of Fleabag and then I'll just chip in. Go on, tell me what you thought of this new season of Fleabag. Like everyone else, I think I had very high expectations of Fleabag, so there was a load of pressure, not only because the first series of Fleabag was so good, but of course Phoebe Wallabridge went off and then promptly did Killing Eve, which was amazing as well. So she had kind of a ton of pressure on her, and I personally think it was nailed. If anything, it was better as a pure brilliant piece of funny but sickening and shocking comedy drama. I mean, there's just as much drama in there as comedy. It all took place in this restaurant. So it was a very compact episode and it brought back in pretty much all of the main interesting characters from the first season. So it was very intense. It was basically a family reunion thing. And we know that at the end of the last season, Fleabag's family was split asunder by all the drama. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was hilarious, but it was also properly devastating I thought it was beautiful. What did you think? Well, Olivia Colman was in it. She's won like 25 Oscars or something since we last spoke. So that's always fun. I think um, she captures the dynamics between family really well. And it is all very extreme in this particular episode. Everybody's really magnetic on screen. Everything's turned up because the first series of Fleabag was a bit low rent. It was on BBC Three. It was, wasn't probably expecting to get a second series. The whole thing concludes quite nicely at the end. Where are they going to go from here? I don't know, because we kind of know all the secrets, if you like. But at the same time, they seem to have got a load of more money because the lighting's really good in it. And uh, they've got, um, what's that bloke? It was Andrew Scott. Yeah. Playing a saucy vicar in it. Anyway, I'm just intrigued. And now when I watch it, I'm always a bit like, oh, the class thing is is irritating to me. And it reminds me of like dropping in on that world of like absolutely pretentious people and you have to behave nicely and she can't help it at the dinner table. And the sort of 
pretensions of the wine. The wine is amazing. All of that. We don't see very much of that anymore on the BBC because they used to do loads of those in the 70s and 80s, like To the Manor Born, and it was all about class. And this I like as well because you're sort of observing the real dickheads in society. I love that she turns the conceit on its head that she is the member of the family that always causes the outrage and causes the drama. And in this episode, the whole point is right through, she keeps it in and doesn't react, even as things are starting to collapse from other characters' points of view. She just, our our hero is quiet and polite. And then the only reason she does hijack the event and become the central character is in order to deflect from someone else's drama, and that's an act of kindness. And because there's a stranger in their midst as well, he's the one that sort of highlights that they're all behaving really badly, and it's not her at all. Fleabag, you can watch on the BBC iPlayer or on an actual television. It comes on through the airwaves. What else did we watch? We watched Derry Girls, completely different style of programme, but um, I found it really heartwarming. It's about a girl growing up in the 90s. An episode that I enjoyed most. She's living with her parents. She's living with her granddad. She's living with her aunt, her cousin. She doesn't realise she's working class until um, there's a school trip. And the, the girl that's organising it says it's going to cost £300. And uh, why don't you just dip into your trust fund? So all of their friends were like, oh... Of course, we've got a trust fund. Oh, well, let's go and ask our mums about our trust fund. And they're all absolutely disappointed to find out that none of these working class kids have got a trust fund. And also, all the mums in it are brilliantly portrayed as well. And you can just see how generations have just grown up all knowing each other in this small town in Derry. That's why it's called Derry. Clues in the title. <laughs> what I mean is in Northern Ireland while the troubles are going on and it's just the life of these women growing up. I find it really heartening. It's a girl gang. They're all a bit highly strong. And I just love it because they're growing up with the British Army, guns, and they're living in a war zone, basically. We don't see that conflict on the news anymore because it's supposed to have finished. And even though it's a comedy, that military occupation and that sense of conflict is shot right through it. It's it's not just in the background. Quite often it's the plot point as well. Like, they go on holiday into Southern Ireland and they find a bloke in the boot of their car who is, well, it's not explicit whether he's a terrorist himself or just an activist or whatever, but basically they have to deal with all those nuances of the crime they've accidentally committed. I mean, it just wouldn't happen except that they're in this war zone. Or just the, the, the fact that they've got this English cousin over and the school bus gets stopped and the military come on and search the, the bus, the school bus with schoolgirls on it. They've got machine guns. But I just really enjoyed it. And it's just interesting talking to some of the middle-aged men I know. And they were like, oh, I'm not, I wasn't really into it. And I'd switch it off. And I was like, well, it's not for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Derry Girls is on Channel 4. And you can stream the whole first series that already happened on the Channel 4 player. 4OD. Yeah, 4OD. Leading on from uh, finding a bloke in your car that you weren't expecting in the boot of your car. <laughs> nice link, Reefer. Yeah, we also we also watched the first episode of Rufus Jones' Home, which is about a Syrian refugee who smuggles himself to the UK in the boot of a family's car on the way home from a holiday, the drama that ensues when he shows up at their house. First of all, it's about Syrian refugees. I don't know how hilarious this is going to be, but at the same time, it's sort of following that kind of sitcom trope of... 
oh, we've got an alien in our house. What are we going to do with him? You know, always different. What does he eat? Where are we going to take him? That kind of thing. It's probably going to turn into something like that. Um, again, it's quite subtle. And we know people who've brought home some refugees and that's, they're usually young, much younger boys. They're staying in their houses and that's an experience in itself. And I'm not sure how much this is similar to that because anyway, a bit of me is like how I felt when I saw the Chavadi character in, um, in People Just Do Nothing where you've got an, a, an ethnic character that's like so kind of caricatured that you might actually feel... I don't really know who this programme is for. Is it supposed to be... F- how, in what way did you feel he was a caricature? I don't know. It's just another ethnic character on the telly that's... I don't know whether this is going to be heartwarming for people. Oh, look at this interesting refugee character. You know, isn't it hilarious? Or... Or what? You know, I, f- I don't know. I'm a bit uncomfortable about it all at the moment. I thought it was extraordinary that they didn't choose a much younger... I would imagine that, given that it's a mainstream sitcom aimed at a kind of mainstream audience, it's definitely a soft, gentle... Well, relatively soft, gentle sitcom aimed at a kind of mainstream audience these days. It's a lot less self-consciously edgy than, you know, Fleabag or Russian Doll or whatever. It was really interesting that they've chosen a big, bulky man to be the refugee and the hero of the piece, Sammy, and not a kind of 19-year-old slim young adult. They've not used, like, a character of skins or something. I thought that was a real positive point. And I didn't think... I didn't understand... I, I don't understand... He's not a caricature at all. Like, he's a character. Okay, all right, he's I, a he character. Didn't do anyth- he didn't do anything that would be a caricature at all. In sitcoms, we have caricatures, yeah. right? We have, like, a character. So... The mum's a bit ditzy. The dad's like the dad's a kind of you kipper. You kipper. There's a <laughs> there's a stroppy teenager. You know, oh, though he's not the dad, is he? One of the interesting things about it is that there's a bo- this is a boyfriend who is in his own way uh, new to the family as well. They're both interlopers, and the the episode the way the episode ends with them both sharing the living room because he's had to go and sleep on the sofa is really fascinating. They kind of bond really quickly as well, and they've let this person in their house, and it's like. Within 24 hours, they've just let this person who they've never met into their house. I absolutely adored Home. I thought it was subtly, beautifully written. And even though it's a really different voice from something like Fleabag, I thought it was as well written as the first couple of episodes of Fleabag were. It was, it was totally perfect. And so I'm, I'm quite excited to keep watching it. I think it was really Nice. Good. Go on. I might watch it or continue watching it because it's such a unique situation that I don't know about the universality of it. I found it really moving and funny. I was definitely on its side. Maybe it's because it's lots of middle-aged men. I'm not interested in. <laughs> <laughs> so even though he's a refugee, because he's a middle-aged bloke, I just don't care. <laughs> you're not sure yet at all. I'm not bothered. Yeah, and then we attempted to watch Alan Partridge, and we literally lasted about three minutes, didn't we? It just doesn't work because there's like Piers Morgan on real TV who is just as weird. And there's the one show and there's so many yeah. different TV shows that are worse but better because they're real. I mean, it doesn't even warrant airtime on my show. No. <laughs> um, look, let me just ask you, what do you think the best thing that Steve Coogan's ever done? Do you like The Trip, don't you? I love The Trip. I think he's really brilliant in... Um, my favourite is when he was in Twenty Four Hour Party People playing Tony Wilson. Yeah, I think that's just the best he was thing great. He's ever done. Yeah, I mean I like a lot of Partridge. I was really excited about Partridge coming back, and I don't want to bang into a negative thing, but I can't watch it. 
And I got that in three minutes. I was like, I don't need any more I don't understand why he's even back on the TV like this. Because, yeah. again, I'm kind of over middle-aged men. Quality. This week I went on a poetry workshop at the Onker Gallery run by Subira. They have a Facebook page called Subira. Oh, sorry. It's all right. Go for it. S U B I R A, spoken word on Facebook. They are a performance poet who we first saw perform at the Marlborough Theatre in Brighton. An absolutely stunning poem that they performed again at the poetry workshop. And the workshop was based on Bell Hooks's essay from 1992, Bell Hooks, the African-American feminist philosopher. And this particular essay focused on the idea of the patriarchy consuming people who don't conform, who are seen as other, including women, people of colour, women of colour and LGBT people and LGBT people of colour who are also women. (laughs) (laughs) That's called intersectionality, if you didn't already know. So the poet was new to running workshops, um, but within the two hours that the group was running for, um, we discussed the essay, we did a bit of pair work, listening to the thoughts about what the idea of eating the other, which is the name of the essay, brought up. Fetishization, fetishize. Fetish, <laughs> fetishize. <laughs> try and say that on a on a dark night fetishization fetishization yeah right i said it capitalism <laughs> I can pronounce that personal accounts of racism and othering and then we did some free writing which brought up quite a lot of stuff for me um stop laughing and then we turned some of those themes into an actual poem So for me, what it brought up were things around ethnic food, uh, cultural stereotypes, appropriation. There's a group in Brighton now for women of colour and that was part of this thing because um, I'm one of the admin people on the Facebook group and we keep getting women who aren't women of colour trying to join the group. So I kind of all packaged all of that into the poem that I wrote. But I really enjoyed the workshop. It was pretty pacey and uh, there was a lot of time for reflection and I met loads of young people that I haven't actually met before in Brighton which is always nice and refreshing. Some of them were students at uh, Brighton and Sussex. After you've done all the preamble bits, how long did you have to actually write, sort of get your notes that you've done and write a poem, try and complete a poem? It was really quick. Yeah. Yeah, it was about less than half an hour, oh, I think. seriously, wow, So that's we waxed some stuff down, and I tell you what, people performed their poems, and they were amazing. A couple in particular, the first three people who, who read their poems out, who were quite unassuming, they were just beautiful poems, all complete and um, quite academic in many ways. But I think that's because they practice poetry, writing poems a lot, and that's what happens when you exercise that muscle of writing and developing and writing songs and poems, as I'm sure that you understand that process, Chris. I used to knock out poems all the time. I used to feel like they were like, when I've read Rupi Kaur's books, um, I was like, oh, she's doing my style that I was doing like when I was like 13. Anyway. I think that's why a lot of people <sighs> like her. I know. Because they feel like, I could write this, only I didn't think of it. Yeah. 
And that is a whole school of poetry now, isn't it? That kind of immediacy of feeling and less worrying about form and structure and more just like get it out there and create something and put it out and pop. Yeah, and we talked about this in a previous episode and then you then you read any one of Maya Angelou's poems and you think, oh, I'm not really a poet. What's your poem like? I thought it was pretty are okay. Gonna, are you going to read it for us here? They're all going, yes, 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 read the poem, read the poem. Um, originally, I, I think they advertised this as a, a space just for black, Asian, minority, ethnic people. So it was going to be just for people of colour. And then when we actually got there, there were three people that were that were white people. So I felt a bit uncomfortable, right, reading my poem in front of those people because it's part of it was saying, oh, can we not just have spaces for ourselves sometimes, meet up? I'll do it because I like talking. So I remind you of jasmine and hot curry, but what do you eat? You think my mum's biryani is almost authentic. Her food is too good for your ginger stomach. We lost all, we lost language, land, lost home. Have you eaten yet? Our food is life, is colour, is more abundance than you can handle, than you deserve. In your grey country, your grey food. Now you don't want our fresh bananas, our juicy mangoes. Your hair, bad braids, your skin, your fake skin. No, you can't be in our club. You own all the tables. Black and loud and chilly and brown. Can you just let us have a space, a place to be loud, to be right, not white? Then you have to put like some music in. tell you this thing that happened to me which was really extraordinary and uh, did my head in a bit I was researching something completely separate involving my family name I went on the internet and googled my surname our surname and a year ended up having to go right down through into deep google to try and find something else and what I found by mistake was some audio recordings in the archive of the Imperial War Museum the Imperial War Museum have just digitised their archive and put it online of old people talking about their experiences in the First World War and presumably the Second World War and other wars. And I found my great uncle, my great uncle Reg, barely knew Reg existed. I had heard his name before, I'd heard of him, but my father has probably only talked about him a handful of times in my entire life. He's not a big part of my family life, is my great uncle Reg, my dad's dad's brother. And I didn't know anything about his war service or anything. But in 1974, he did an interview for, for the Imperial War Museum and he talked all about his military service. And When you were born. The same year I was born, God, yeah. And it's on this archive in six audio files, each of which is about 15 minutes long. So it's over an hour and a half of material. And so I was on the train on the way home, gobsmacked that I'd found this stuff. So I started listening to it and the first 15 or 20 minutes was pretty dry and boring and it was just about joining the army and all the kind of technical equipment of the war. And then suddenly, without any warning, he's at the Battle of Luz and he goes over the top in the Battle of Luz. And it's incredibly vivid, visceral, it's Certificate 18 type description of what's gone on, but told in that incredibly calm, 
kind of old-fashioned, matter-of-fact way that old English soldiers speak. And he just describes going over the top and killing some people and seeing his friends killed and getting to a German trench. And in the end, he captures nine German soldiers during this experience of being at the Battle of Luz. And I'm on the train listening to it, absolutely mesmerised. It connected me straight to everything from and they shall not grow old the peter jackson film of which is built of audio testimony from the same archive through to things like the monocle mutineer basically fiction a lot of tv fiction and film fiction is what it connected me to because that's my only frame of reference but because it was my great uncle who i never knew but because it that subtle connection made it so incredibly powerful to listen to and thinking I'm the first person in my family to listen to this because none of my family knew it existed. So me emailing links to it to everyone in my family has been the first sharing of that. Anyway, it felt completely vivid and completely immediate and I lost myself in this appalling, horrible description of war described in that way. I have to say this is a bit of a sad episode we're doing, I think. Yeah, not intentionally, but it is. That's why we're probably best to drop any conversation of Michael Jackson. Magenta Divine died just a couple of days ago. Uh, she was a presenter in the late 80s that I found really inspiring. I thought she was super cool. She used to wear red lipstick and dark glasses all the time. She had a black bob and she was super cool. She used to be on like Network 7, which was one of the first news culture programmes for young people on Channel 4. Anyway, she died at 61 this week. What are you reading for? What are you reading for? What are you reading for? So what are you reading for, for? So um, everybody, I'm sure, who's interested in mental health will have heard of Matt Haig. He's written tons of books. Uh, this is a, one of his best-known books called Reasons to Stay Alive. It was the number one Sunday Times bestseller. I quite like little books like this because it always think inspires me to write because he's written... It's one of those books where he's written like lots of little chapters that he's written over a period of time and suddenly he's written a book by writing kind of like blog post-style articles about mental health. He triumphs over depression and uh, learn to live again, it says on the back. The reason you may have heard of him as well, if you're not already a fan of his work, is that one of his little vignettes in the book is a poem, I suppose, uh, that has done the rounds on social media over and over again. And he always says, it me, whenever it, it's uh, out. So it's uh, it says self-help. It's called How to Stop Time, Kiss. How to Travel in Time, Read. How to Escape Time, Music. How to Feel Time, Write. How to Release Time, Breathe. What I think is good about it his exploration of his own experience of mental illness and some research that he's done. Um, the problem is these sorts of books are great when you're feeling good about yourself and your own mental health. I wouldn't recommend giving it to somebody who's suffering with anxiety or depression right the second. And he even has a chapter at the back where he talks about how the news itself is designed to make us feel anxious and scared about the world. It's good for when you're feeling more positive about your life, if that makes sense. Can we put, splice in a bit of everybody in the place? Yes, everybody we can. in the place. Everybody's Definitely. in the place. We can. Wee! What are you reading? Um, I was going to recommend an essay in The Atlantic this week that I really enjoyed by Ed Yong, 
called We Are Destroying Chimpanzee Cultures and it's specifically an article about not so much the decimation of chimpanzees' lives or the incursion into their territory but what it does to their cultures given a history that a lot of these sophisticated animals have distinct cultures for distinct groups of them living in different places. So part of me was reading it thinking, well, this is cool, but it's not as important as the fact that we just kill them and we ruin their forest or their landscape, their natural world. But another part of me was thinking, yeah, this is a really fascinating point. They have developed distinct cultures depending on different areas and we're doing irreparable, immeasurable harm to that kind of development. And so, yeah, it's an interesting piece. It's by Ed Yong. It's called We Are Destroying Chimpanzee Cultures and it's in the Atlantic. Well, we're done. And it wasn't as depressing as it could have been if we talked about... Uh, so we'll talk to you again next week. Everybody's in the <laughs> um, Cheerio. Bye. Bye. Finished. You could do a pop. You haven't done one yet this season. <laughs>